Governments crumble and empires fall in all kinds of ways. Are we witnessing that now? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. One of the things that really should be learned from history is that it is always, not usually, but always unpredictable. Algorithms can be used to very accurately calculate factors and determine next steps. Not so human social and political history. For example, as our guest Matt Waymeyer writes, a system that seems absolutely solid and predestined to proceed in one direction can falter and open the door for radical change. His article at The Baffler, a magazine of art, criticism, and political analysis, and on the History News Network is titled, How Empires Fall, on the Berlin Wall, the August Coup, and the Decline of Great Powers. His article focuses on the stunning turn of events in the old Soviet Union and in what had been East Germany around 1990. But there's much to be gleaned from the article that is applicable to the politics of the United States in the 2020s. Today's surprising power of the far-right Trumpist forces within the Republican Party is just one example. Who would have predicted? By examining what happened to communism in the 1990s, today we're taking a path less taken for keeping democracy alive. As an old friend of mine writes, we are at an important time to preserve our democratic republic. There are evil forces at play that could bring it all down. Our guest today is Matt Waymeyer. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Matt Waymeyer is a writer and organizer with a master's in history from the University of Chicago, a fluent German speaker who lived in Berlin for a semester in 2014 and taught English for a year in 2015 and 2016. He used that time to learn much about the history of East Germany from people who actually lived there. For the past four and a half years, he's been a volunteer organizer in the People's Action Network and the related organization Justice is Global, working to build an international consensus around basic labor rights and improving the U.S.-China relationship. Boy, you got your work cut out for you. His historical (laughs) interests cover the 19th and 20th century Europe, particularly the Cold War. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And you begin your essay saying that, quote, governments crumble and empires fall in all kinds of ways. Okay, what are some of those ways? I would say that there are two main ways in which um, governments uh, crumble and face uh, difficulties with their uh, with their um, ability to govern. Uh, the first one is the dissatisfaction of the ruling class. So the army or the politicians or the uh, economic class decides that they're dissatisfied with the government and um, decide to overthrow it, or the people decide that they are um, unsatisfied in some way. Um, these factors can be caused, um, economically. So, you know, people don't have enough to eat or there's a, uh, you know, there's an economic crisis in terms of capital. Um, it can be, uh, from political exclusion. So a certain class, like we saw in South Africa during apartheid, um, is excluded, is broadly excluded from power or a certain political group, um, certain interest group is excluded from power. The army, you know, during the cold war, that was a big factor. A lot of times, um, unpopular policies that are implemented by the government, um, and other uh, internal social and political mass movements. Um, we see actually that this is still going on. Um, just this month, uh, there was a coup in Guinea, which is in West Africa. Uh, we witnessed, you know, very publicly the Taliban victory in Afghanistan um, after uh, Joe Biden completed the withdrawal of U.S. troops from there. Um, and then just last week, we had a, an attempt by uh, the far-right president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, to conduct a January 6th-style assault on the Supreme Court of Brazil. Wow. Fortunately, that did not succeed to um, 
you know, to overthrow the, the Brazilian government. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of fear around that. Um, and there's no reason to think that this is going to slow down anytime yeah. soon. <laughs> Boy, political exclusion. A lot of people felt politically excluded when the 2016 election happened. And uh, there was the more of the same old, same old in the person of Hillary Clinton. The other choice for those who felt politically excluded, obvious what happened. One of mm. the traditional factors in bringing structural change is large street protests. Here in the U.S., as you mentioned, about 4 million people participated in some 60 cities across America in January 2017. And there were the massive angry protests across the country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, uh, as you say, drawing between 15 and 26 million Americans. And you note, none of it seemed to have made an immediate difference in cracking the minority rule grip of elected Republicans in state and federal office or weakening Trump's retrogressive agenda during his four-year term. Now, how is it that all these big, huge protests didn't seem to uh, uh, crack the minority rule grip? Well, I think the answer to that is that there are, you know, just like I said in the article, there are moments that can lead to change. And this was a really remarkable time in American history. The fact that so many people came out in a unified show of dissatisfaction with the way the government is handling policing um, was really remarkable. But it also didn't represent one of those moments where, you know, the where the dam breaks and everything changes all at once. Um, there are only a few of those moments that happen, um, you know, every decade even and probably much less than that. Um, as you know, obviously, I'm sure you talked about it on the podcast before. The United States is heavily gerrymandered, especially in the Senate and Electoral College. Um, Republicans have been losing support for decades. They're uh, now falling into the minority. Um, based on my personal analysis, I uh, seriously doubt that Republicans in their present form will ever win the popular vote for president again. Um, and so in order to maintain their position as a viable party, as a uh, as a party that gets roughly or over 50 percent of the vote um, or 50 percent of the control of the government, um, they have to resort to voter suppression and yes. gerrymandering, increasingly severe gerrymandering in the House uh, to command majorities. Yeah, that that is a tough nut to crack for sure. And of course, the January 6th uprising, the goal was to defeat and override democracy with a coup against the legitimately elected president, Joe Biden. Clearly, that attempted overthrow of the government was directed by then-President Donald Trump. What could have made that coup attempt a success? Was there a missing ingredient? Well, I'm glad you asked that, actually, because the missing ingredient was planning of any kind on the part of Donald Trump and, and anybody who was uh, who was looking to execute a coup in the United States. Uh, planning and executing a real coup is a very delicate thing. Um, and Trump obviously is not a uh, not a details person. I would say he's uniquely unsuited to um, to deal with this kind of a problem. So, you know, if he had been serious about planning, you know, to overturn the election results, he would have had to spend months making a case to the American people, to his own party and to the national security state that either overturning 200 years of stable elections or mostly stable elections is somehow in their best interest or that they're actually the ones defending democracy against usurping Democrats by doing so. Um, so none of these groups were on board in the way that they needed to be, not even the Republican Party for the most part. Um, the military in particular was uh, made it very clear that they were not going to stand for a coup and that they were preparing to defy illegal orders um, issued by Donald Trump to keep him in power. 
Um, and I think really where this comes from is Trump believed his own lies about election fraud and sent the rioters off without any clear goals or the means to restore him to office. There was no mechanism by which they could have overturned the election on January 6th, um, and there was no way for the, that the state would ever recognize the demands that they were making. Nice. Uh, that's a good analysis, I must say. Uh, Thank you. And if to be successful, a coup depends on the support of the military— uh, we know that is so often the case in so many countries around the world. You write about mm -hmm. an attempted coup by the military 30 years ago in Moscow. The, the, the military has all the guns and the training and the discipline, something that the left always lacks, discipline, <laughs> stuff like that. Tell us about that coup, mili uh, attempted coup 30 years ago in Moscow, how that went. How could the organized military fail? Well, this is actually very closely related to the, uh, you know, to the point of my article about the situation in East Germany in 1989, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So the most of the East German army at that point were conscripts. Both German states required um, military service for the entire Cold War, for the most part. Um, and so the military was made up mostly of drafted soldiers who had not elected to be in the military. Um, the ruling party of East Germany, which is called the Socialist Unity Party, went back and forth about whether the army was going to be politically reliable, quote unquote, enough to send into the fray. Uh, the party determined that they were not reliable enough, that they would not follow order, or that they would likely disobey orders to fire on protesters or to really crack down in a very violent way. Um, and so they were ordered to disengage. Um, many, you know, the uh, police forces and the Stasi agency, the Stasi was the secret police force in East Germany, yeah. um, were more politically reliable. They were more loyal to the SED and they were more likely to be willing to use violence. But frankly, there were just not enough of those um, units. And they were frankly scared that if they attempted to use violence to control the protests, that they would be surrounded and um, and beaten, essentially, yeah. you know, to um, <laughs> to they they. You, they were trembling in fear, basically, at the uh, at the size of these protests because they knew that there was just no way to control them. Um, and then the last thing that I want to say about that is that um, the government also wanted to avoid a massacre that would spark even greater unrest or an armed revolt or a civil war within East Germany. Um, we saw that in Hungary in 1956. There was a peaceful protest that got out of control. You know, there was violence on both sides. The Soviet army had to be called in. Thousands of people were killed, and the Hungarian People's Republic was never the same after that. And so East Germany took those lessons very seriously and knew that they needed to uh, to avoid a confrontation like that, especially because the Soviet Union was not going to be coming in to help. So it seems like, if I hear you right, that even if the military has all the guns, all the training, if you don't have the hearts and minds of the individuals who make up the military, it ain't going to work. That's interesting. Yeah. You, if you can't depend on the individual soldiers, you can order the military to do anything, but they mm -hmm. won't do it. <laughs> and I, frankly, you know, being an American and getting, uh, you know, somewhat uh, localized news, I had not heard about this attempted coup in uh, Brazil with mm -hmm. Bolsonaro. If you could tell us mm -hmm. about that just a little bit, that's fascinating. Bolsonaro has been um, in dire political straits over the past year. Obviously, Brazil has had a very severe um, COVID-19 outbreak. And unlike in the United States, where Donald Trump was very successfully able to polarize 
public opinion and say the disease is fake, vaccine is fake, you know, all these all these Republican talking points, you know, that have been made. Bolsonaro has not been able to galvanize his own base of support. And so he's had very high disapproval ratings over the course of the past couple months in particular. Um, and so he is going to be up for reelection in early 2023. He is widely, at this point, polls are suggesting that uh, Lula, who is the former socialist president of Brazil, he was removed under um, suspicious circumstances by the uh, by the courts accused of wrongdoing, um, which was uh, was widely to be believed to be a partisan investigation against him. He has now been cleared to run for president again, and he's it's widely believed that he's going to win the next uh, Brazilian presidential election. You know, if it were held today, he would definitely win. And so Bolsonaro is feeling. Um, stressed. He's under investigation for other crimes that he's committed. Very unpopular. Um, he's got, I think, around 25, 30 percent support among the people. And so basically he on the National Independence Day, he decided we are going to take to the streets and we're going to show people that we are not going to stand for any kind of constitutional checks, that we're not going to stand for what he called communism yeah. um, taking over Brazil. Um, and so he called on his supporters to come out in a very similar January 6th style insurrection. Um, to try and storm the Supreme Court. Fortunately, that effort failed. The uh, state police in Brasilia were able to uh, to hold back the protesters, and there was not a successful um, overthrow of the government. But it was, you know, obviously very much molded in the path of January 6th, and it shows very much just how dangerous a man like Bolsonaro is. 1989 was a remarkable year for the communist powers that were in Eastern Europe. As you say, history took a sudden U-turn. Decisive political moments are rarely expected and even more rarely planned, end of quote. I think of the spontaneous rally led by women who could not feed their children in St. Petersburg, Russia, 1905. That by itself did not throw out the ruling aristocracy in Russia, but it built over time, and in 1917, the Tsar was overthrown. In Berlin in 1989, what led to the fall of East Germany, the GDR, was also spontaneous. Talk about that, if you would, please. Uh, over the course of my time staying in Berlin, and then I lived in uh, Jena, which is a city, a medium-sized city in Thuringia, which is in east-central Germany. Um, yeah, I met a lot of people who lived in East Germany. It was not that long ago. Um, so there are people who are uh, a little bit older now who actually grew up and were adults at the time that the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and so I've talked to them and I've learned a lot about the situation in East Germany generally and in 1989 specifically. Um, but until I really started doing research for this article, I didn't realize how quickly the protests in East Germany kind of manifested and moved to their conclusion. So it wasn't until September in East Berlin and elsewhere around East Germany, that the protests really started to pick up steam. Um, and by November 9th, which is about two months later, uh, the Berlin Wall had come down and everything, you know, it was all over. For the background, though, as far as the um, as far as the Eastern Bloc is concerned, um, the situation had been developing for a while. Poland had been simmering with anti-government sentiment on and off for decades. Um, they had gone through periods of military rule. Solidarity had been led by the uh, Lech Walesa in, um, in Poland, had been um, very successful in um, you know, organizing and making demands of the Polish government for decades. Um, and bo in both Poland and Hungary, before the, uh, the events of uh, September, October, November, the people protesting in Poland and Hungary had won significant concessions before the events in East Germany started to unfold. Um, a lot of the reason why people were upset with the situation yes. was economic. The economy in a lot of these countries was stagnating. 
Um, and some of these countries were uh, facing bankruptcy because of their financial relationships to the West. They were having trouble financing their debts. Um, and a lot of people, especially young people, were frustrated by the lack of opportunity. Um, I should note that East Germany was, uh, at the time, in 1989, the most prosperous communist state per capita in the world. Um, they had the high, highest GDP per capita. I think even with the rise of China, I think that's still true that they hi had a higher GDP per capita than China does today. But this still lagged behind West Germany in terms of salaries, um, access to consumer goods, and, of course, the ability to travel to the West. Um, which was another reason why people were so unhappy is they were prevented from going anywhere in Western Europe, anywhere around the world that wasn't effectively a communist country. Good to know what brings it out. In 1905, the, uh, the protests in St. Petersburg were about lack of food. And that tends to be a rather significant incentive if people are starving to get out there in the streets. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Matt Wehmeyer. And we're talking about how empires fall and the Berlin Wall, the August coup, and the decline of great powers. And again, focusing on, on East Germany, you say the Stasi, the secret police, found itself unable to quiet the streets, end of quote. They were unequipped to deal effectively. Here, tremendous amounts of often deadly military equipment has been funneled to local police under the guise of Homeland Security, a name that gave me the creeps when it first came into existence. How does that affect mm. the equation of any popular demand for change? The issue with uh, military equipment is, um, is a very real danger. In the 1970s and 80s especially, uh, there were plenty of examples of far-right governments and militias using such weapons on protesters and rebels uh, throughout Latin America, Asia, and parts of Europe. We're talking about like the dirty war in Argentina, in Brazil, there was a military government, um, the Philippines, Taiwan, Korea, Indonesia, a lot of crackdown on um, suspected communists, but also just dissidents who were um, mm. unhappy with with far right governments. Um, and I think that's a lot of the fear of what we're uh, what we're seeing today in the uh, in the United States with this militarization. Um, I think ultimately whether these police actions or these efforts to quell protests succeed depend on how well protesters can mobilize public opinion. To give two examples that are actually still ongoing, last year um, in both uh, Thailand and Belarus, we see you know massive protests against um, governments that have basically just said, no, we're not going to have multi-party elections or we're not going to give major concessions to the, the opposition parties. Um, and those protests, even though they're not in the news, are still going on. Um, and even though these governments are very oppressive and they're very interested in maintaining the status quo and getting people to quietly kind of go back to their normal lives, um, they haven't been able to stop these protests. Um, and they haven't been able to use the kind of violence that they might want to because yeah. they're concerned about what that could bring from the uh, from the international arena. The last thing that I'll say about this is that police, it seems a lot of times like they have all of the advantages, yeah. um, that they hold all the cards. But especially in a decisive moment, like I said, with the with the Stasi being afraid of the protesters for being so, you know, just these massive uh, throngs of people, you know, that are difficult to control with violence or impossible to control with violence. This kind of control can can degrade very quickly. The Stasi were the most feared men in East Germany, maybe among the most feared men in Europe. Um, at the height of their power. And they were forced to stand by and watch as protesters ransacked their offices and recovered millions of pages of documents that they had maintained on citizens in East Germany. And so they they were completely powerless to stop that. And just a few months later, the Stasi was dissolved. In a revolutionary moment, that's the kind of thing that can happen very quickly. These power relationships are turned on their head. 
And for those who haven't seen the movie, The Lives of Others, boy, that's a good one, all about the Stasi Mm. from uh, 2006. And again, on, on East Germany, you say many East German protesters did not want to see an end to socialism, as the West portrayed, only to oppressive single party rule, end of your quote. Though the main, currently the mainstream media is depicting people protesting in Cuba as being wanting to overthrow the government and being against their left-wing government. And I see the similar thing as in East German protesters in Cuba, uh, that, that they don't really want to overthrow the government. They just want uh, something that serves them better. What did East Germans and Russians, what do the Cubans really want? Was it more democratic socialism or privatization of everything, an unrestrained capitalist free-for-all? Well, you know, it is a complicated question to ask because obviously different Cubans, different East Germans want different things, right? There are some Cubans and there were a lot of East Germans who did really just hate communism and really wanted it to end, really wanted to either unify with West Germany or to have a kind of a liberal or conservative republic um, come to Cuba. But, you know, on the other hand, like in the West, especially, we get this narrative over and over again that like the, um, you know, this is this was the Reaganite kind of narrative during the later half of the Cold War, uh, that the Soviet people hate communism almost uniformly and yearn to be free. This was a talking point that Reagan used over and over again, that uh, that the people in the Eastern Bloc were prisoners of the Soviet Union. Um, so for some people, like I said, that's obviously true. You know, some people really did, you know, were targeted by the state or really did, you know, hate socialism. Um, but by the 1980s, we talk about East Germany for a second, most people in the Eastern Bloc had grown up under communism. People who had uh, who had been born in the 1940s didn't know any other kind of government. They went to school and they were taught that um, you know socialism is the future of humanity. That right. solidarity is an important virtue for for people. And you know for for a lot of people and especially young people, you know there was not a lot of resistance necessarily to those parts of the of the socialist uh, doctrine. Essentially, there was genuinely a base of support for socialism among people who actually believed that it was a good model for society. Um, and of course, this was constantly tempered and is still tempered in certain communist countries, especially Cuba, because of its isolation economically, that are tempted by what was at that time, you know, especially a mysterious land of almost unimaginable wonders that was the West. It seemed like people could have anything they wanted and got it immediately. And um, nobody knew the full extent of poverty joblessness and political conservatism that existed in the West, so the struggles for women's rights, the struggles for uh, higher wages, etc., because uh, none of them have ever had ever experienced it, and that was not the kind of thing that they saw on um, West German television, for example. So one interesting anecdote that I found, um, again, in my research for this article is that, um, you know, this was from a uh, from an anniversary special from a German uh, TV network on the 25th anniversary of the Berlin Wall falling. The guy said uh, most Berliners who went through the Berlin Wall on November 9th we're not looking to emigrate to the West. They were not looking to leave their entire lives behind. Basically, what they did is they walked through the wall. They got, you know, they wandered around for a while, took in the sights, maybe, uh, you know, had a beer or did, you know, did something. You know, it was late at night, obviously, but there were still some places open. They just kind of hung out for a while. And then they went back because they had to go to bed because they had work in the morning. To bring it back specifically to Cuba, 
the media coverage in a lot of ways was very slanted. It was very geared towards these kind of smaller right wing protests that, you know, the, the far left in the United States accuses of being instigated by the United States. I think to some degree that may be true. You know, it's hard to say for sure. But the narrative is that right wing protests, these anti-Castro, anti-communist protests were much larger. I saw a, uh, a clip from Fox News that um, had a Cuban person holding a sign and they blurred out what it actually said on the sign. But what it said was, Viva la Revolución Cubana, which means long live the Cuban Revolution. Um, and so you see pictures of people uh, sitting on monuments with this gigantic 26th of July banner, which is Fidel Castro's movement when he, uh, when he first came to Cuba to, to attempt to overthrow the Batista government. And so ultimately there were these huge counter protests that were not really well covered. And it was a very, you know, it was, it was misleading in a certain sense. Um, you know, and that is not to say that Cuba doesn't have serious problems right now. I was actually fortunate enough in 2014 uh, to be allowed to travel to Cuba as part of a uh, tour with my, uh, with my university. And, um, you know, we saw both good and bad aspects of the, uh, of the Cuban government there. Um, but I would say overwhelmingly, the economic problems that Cuba is facing um, are caused by or exacerbated by the U.S. embargo, um, which is a huge, uh, which is a huge obstacle that the Cuban government is constantly having to work around. Well, I can't help but think that that keeps them in power for that. I mean, you know, it's like blame all the problems on the U.S. embargo, which is very, very effective. It, I mean, it, it, the embargo does affect things. And I, I would mm. think that that might uh, keep the, the, the government in power. And again, it was, of course, mm. the, the mainstream media simplifies things. You know, what a surprise. Mm. And it, of course, it wasn't so simple. And a little bit off the course here. I like to take detours from time to time. So mm. thinking of, uh, of the uh, GDR of East Germany in 2019, I was touring World War I sites in France and Belgium. And at Verdun, I spoke with some high school students from Germany. I asked them about the then ascendant AFD, the uh, Alliance for Deutschland, uh, or Action mm. for Deutschland, something like that. It was a right-wing mm. neo-fascist party, and it was on the rise at the time. I was taken aback when these high school kids from Germany told me that, that the far-right neo-fascists enjoyed their biggest support in former East Germany, which, of course, had been communist and author authoritarian police state government, as you describe in your piece. I was baffled. Perhaps you can explain why this was. Why would there be more support for that, you know, far right in East Germany, which had suffered under an authoritarian police state government? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think, um, you know, it's the um, alternative for Germany is the name of the party. Um, we okay. we had some experiences with them in um in Germany, I was involved with a uh, with a local left wing organization, and we would go to protests, and we would, um, you know, we would do our best to uh, to you know raise our voices to oppose the IFD whenever they would come out. Because I was in the former East Germany, um, as I said before, um, you know, one thing that I will mention is that East Germany was very anti Nazi. Actually, the official name for the Berlin Wall was the Antifaschistische Schutzwall which means anti-fascist defensive barrier. And so mm. in propaganda, it was kind of billed as a way to prevent Nazis sponsored by the West German government from coming into East Germany and committing sabotage. Um, wow. And so, that, so there was a very strong ideological commitment from the East German government against um, Nazism, against fascism. Um, the East German government built itself basically as a nation. The first three lines of its, or the first three words of its national anthem are auf erstanden, aus Ruinen, which means 
like standing up from the rubble or from the ruins of the former Germany. And so they saw themselves as a radical break with fascism, with imperialism and saying, we are going to build a new nation that's completely free of fascism. And of course, they tried very hard to make sure, you know, Nazi party members were not allowed to be teachers. They were not allowed to be party members. The restrictions on what Nazi party, former Nazi party members could and could not do was much stricter than in West Germany. Um, And this is part of the reason why they use this for propaganda. But they did not succeed in stamping out neo-fascism entirely within East Germany. Um, They weren't they weren't able to. Um, and so moving forward, you know, I think that's a small part of it, but I think the biggest part is um, that economic development in East, uh, the former East Germany and the Western states yeah. that, you know, formed the, the majority of West Germany um, are not equal. Um, when West Germany came in and effectively absorbed East Germany into the Federal Republic of Germany, um, huge sections of industry in the East uh, outdated factories, quote unquote, uh, nearly all publishing houses, media outlets, etc. Um, a few newspapers survived, but um, you know they were taken over by West German companies for the most part. Uh, collective farms, etc., were shut down in favor of modernized West German factories that required far few, fewer workers. They would go into these factories yeah. and they would say, "This is criminally inefficient. How you're doing this? You're having a guy stand there and do this all day." You should have a robot do it. And, you know, obviously East Germany wanted to maintain full employment and they didn't have as many, you know, machine access to machine tools, et cetera. Um, and so the West German government has actually, you know, they've, they've established a quote unquote generous, um, you know, development program for the Eastern states to be able to bring them up to speed with West Germany. But overwhelmingly, that's focused on commerce infrastructure, on making sure that businesses have what they need to operate, et cetera. Um, and it's focused very little or not nearly enough, at least on um, making sure that uh, basic living standards are being respected. Um, So, (laughs) Sorry to laugh, but that just seems so typical, but go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And, um, you know, and this was part of the tragedy that, that unfolded across the Eastern Bloc. Living standards um, dropped very dramatically when um, communism fell. Initially, um, East Germans lost things like um, heavily subsidized rent. A lot of times you would pay, you know, the, it was the equivalent of, um, you know, it was 20 German marks um, for for some small apartments in uh, in Berlin. That's the equivalent of about three dollars in the 1980s um, per month that people were spending on rent. Um, jobs guarantees. So you could walk into an office and say, I need a job. And they say, okay, you've got a job. You know, it might be a factory job, probably would be, but, uh, you know, but you would definitely have work that would pay you enough. Um, completely free healthcare. Current German system is a hybrid healthcare system that has left, um, millions of people uninsured. If you want really good insurance, you have to pay for it. Um, and other benefits that, uh, that existed at that time, free childcare. Um, there are, you can, you can just name it, you know, totally, uh, unrestricted access to abortions. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of progressive things in, um, in East Germany that, uh, that just went away in the, uh, you know, when the wall came down. And so to go back to your original question about the IFD, um, the long-term economic damage that we saw from this kind of shock that was the reunification, um, is I think the main reason that people have turned to the far right in the East, um, their significant base of support. Uh, has also caused problems for the other major political parties. I think they're hovering around 20% of the seats right now. Um, but to their credit, all of the uh, current parties in the Bundestag, including the Christian Democrats, which is the conservative party, Angela Merkel's party, um, have all flatly refused to enter into coalition with the AfD. But what that means is that now, because they have such a large percentage of the vote, 
coalitions have to be formed around that, which is, you know, on the on the one hand, admirable, because obviously it would be much worse if the CDU just decided, OK, we're going to coalition with the Octay and we'll always, you know, maintain our power because we're the two largest or not the two largest. But, you know, we easily can get over 50 percent with this coalition. Um, but uh, but, yeah, it has caused um, it's caused problems for German politics. They're so powerful. Wow, interesting. And and having many parties and forcing coalitions doesn't happen here in this country, but uh, in lots of countries around the world. And it sort of keeps mm-hmm. that minority uh, alive. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Matt Weheim, uh, Weimar, and we're talking about how empires fall, the Berlin Wall, the August 2, and the decline the August coup and the decline of great powers, talking about what happened uh, in uh, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, basically. And and you say, with which was, I believe, a phrase coined by Winston Churchill, uh, it wasn't long before the West German government and their conservative anti-communist East German counterparts took control of events. Corporate interests saw the opportunity for a lot of money to be made from newly opened markets in East Germany. And you talked a bit about how that affected the needs of East German workers. And Mm -hmm. uh, today's far-right Republican Party in these uh, currently United States, they seem to be very similar. Whatever serves the corporate profitable interests goes. Widespread suffering is an acceptable aspect of the neoliberal economic framework. Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say that, um, you know, the coronavirus especially has demonstrated that um, for Republicans uh, and, you know, a lot of Democrats, that the economy and the function, you know, the continued functioning of the economy is more important than the lives of workers um, and protecting the uh, the people that are the ones that, uh, that make this economy function. Um, I've seen a lot of rhetoric, especially recently, you know, um, you may be aware and your uh, listeners may be aware that China has adopted very successfully a zero COVID policy, which means that right. every time there is a COVID case in the People's Republic of China, it is aggressively tracked, quarantined, and, you know, basically people have been going in and out of intermittent lockdowns for the past almost two years now um, in China. And that's been very effective at keeping cases low, even with the Delta variant. And I've been reading articles over and over again that have been criticizing the Chinese government and saying, well, when are you going to open up? When are you going to, you know, abandon this Sisyphusian task, essentially, this this almost impossible task of um, of trying to bring COVID deaths you know, or bring COVID cases down to zero. You should just accept, learn to live with the virus just like the rest of the world has um, and, and, just, and just open up your economy. And I think, you know, it's, and it's laughable to see that these, you know, business writers or whoever's producing these articles are, you know, are criticizing China for having what is arguably the most successful uh, COVID-19 policy in the world, or certainly one of them, um, and especially considering that they were the original epicenter of the outbreak, the right. fact that they were able to get that under control within a couple of months and keep cases so low is just absolutely remarkable. And, you know, so it so it strikes me as very hypocritical and is very, um, you know, business centric and very, um, you know, kind of kind of. Um, you know, rejecting and rejecting the idea that human life, you know, is is valuable in an economy. 
um, you know, to say that China now should take on the failed policies of Europe or the United States or other countries that have not been able to contain the spread where, you know, millions of people have died across the across the world because those countries have failed to take things um, take things under control. And so I think that that's really, um, you know, it shows not only that, um, you know, they're concerned more with profits than they are with human life, but also that they're, you know, it seems in some ways also that they're specifically targeting China because, you know, Australia and New Zealand both are quote unquote Western countries that have um, similar policies that are not being criticized in the same way. Um, you know, I've actually compared articles that write about China and that write about somewhere like New Zealand, you know, instituting new lockdowns or Australia. Um, and the, the criticism is not nearly the same. Um, and so I think there is I think there is a sense, you know, not and, and it's not just racism, but it's also I think the media responding to this bipartisan, you know, and the Biden administration has been participating in this too. the bipartisan push towards greater confrontation with China, towards standing up to China, quote unquote, when we uh withdrew from Afghanistan just recently, Joe Biden billed this as, you know, China hates that we're pulling out from Afghanistan because we, um, you know, we'll have more guns to train on Beijing. Like, I, it doesn't make any sense to me, but also that's objectively not true. China does not hate that we're pulling out of Afghanistan. It's, you know, it, Afghanistan shares a, a small border with China, um, and they actually do have an interest in maintaining a stable relationship in uh, in that country. And so, but it, you, obviously it's just rhetoric. It's just Biden trying to, um, you know, push towards that next, um, you know, towards that next uh foreign policy, you know, right. stance essentially. And so, you know, I think that I think that in a certain way, you know, I'm hopeful that the Democrats are not too invested in like really hard anti China rhetoric. I think when things really start to get nasty, which they will, um, you know, and already are, obviously, with the hate crimes that Trump has incited, you know, with his right. with his racist comments about the virus and, and all of that very openly racist. Um, you know, my hope is that Democrats will start to shy away from that. Um, but really, ultimately, we need to know that stoking conflict with China, moving towards a Cold War with China is not going to help people in Xinjiang. It's not going to help people in Hong Kong or Taiwan, it's, it, but it is going to help the far right in the United States. And it's going to help nationalists in China who want to use, a, you know, who would use, you know, and right now they're not in power. But, you know, if the United States goes hard in a Cold War, eventually they will be and they'll be able to use a conflict with the United States to advance kind of a harder agenda that will be even worse. Um, and this is and this is what I've been working on for the past uh, for the past couple of years. through Justice is global. Well, again, you hit, you have your work cut out for you and talk about Sisyphusian. Mm. My goodness gracious. And, uh, you yeah. know, having, you know, corporate profits, Uber Alice, it's it doesn't, mm. you know, people get angry about that uh mm -hmm. and, and, and i would think that there's something in between you know either having you know what what happened to you know when when uh, east germany fell and the big corporations you know sort of uh uh you know rubbed their hands together thought, oh man all these new markets are opened up there's there's mm -hmm. another way to, it doesn't have to be either or but the the simplistic the attraction of the simplistic we got to go after china Boy, it's really strong, and I, you know, it's 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 a hard one to get around. As you say, before the late 1980s, few thought the Iron Curtain could fall so swiftly, and that the protests of 1989 overwhelmed the old system and overcame habits of fatalism and compliance. End of quote. So fast forward to 2021, here in the United States, there's a new political movement, the Trumpists, who 
enthusiastically embrace those habits of fatalism and compliance. And the protests of 89 were against those, you know, trying to free up uh, supporting fatalism and compliance. It seems they're eager for a strong man to run the government, for an authoritarian government, the antithesis of the hard work as citizenship as envisioned by America's founders. Can you explain this? It's kind of a mystery to me. Uh, well, I can do my best. Obviously, this is a this is a huge question. It's the question of our era. And so, you know, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a, uh, you know, a scholar by, you know, or a, uh, a, a um, you know, a famous, uh, you know, pontificator, you know, or a pundit or, or anything like that. But I can give my personal opinion. Um, and my interpretation is that um, Trumpism cloaks itself in the rhetoric of American patriotism. But ultimately, it's about conservatives maintaining perpetual rule over a country that they see as changing too quickly. Like I said, the Republican Party is currently feeling under threat. Um, the recent voter uh, suppression push has been a direct response to the um, to the realization and the um, sharpening realization on the fact that Republicans, that 2016 was not a new you know, red wave of republicanism that was just going to sweep across the country and give them another, you know, 10 or 20 years of, of dominance or of, you know, secure uh, political futures. They realized that they are going to continue to consistently lose elections unless they really do something about people being able to vote. Um, and, you know, as ridiculous as it sounds, that is actually the, you know, the, um, the situation that we're in. And in a lot of ways, they are actually scared of what, um, you know, how this country is transforming and what Democrats are going to do. You know, this is what we see with the the reconciliation bill. We can talk about that more in a little bit. Um, but the idea that uh, strongman Trump, quote unquote, yeah. uh, can preserve a way of life that conservatives perceive to be dying is a lie. And it's a big lie. But it is a big part of his appeal and it's a big part of the reason why he was so successful in 2016 um, and less successful in 2020. Um so today, uh, to answer your question about the uh, the you know this this idea of the hard work of citizenship, um, I think really what we're looking for is it runs through um, inclusive mass politics centered on meeting the needs of everyday people. Um, and so this is the direction that the Democratic Party is actually moving in. I mm. mean, slowly, haltingly, <laughs> it seems like it's taken forever, but uh, you know, but hopefully we'll be able to talk about that as well. Um, you know, that I do I do actually have hope that the Democratic Party is actively changing over the past year. We've seen some very encouraging signs. Um, but that is the direction that we're going to continue or that we're going to have to continue to move. Democrats have to prove that they're going to be able to do things for people and actually change things. And that's how they're going to be able to win elections. Um, and I think the Democratic leadership is starting to realize that, which is a very encouraging sign. Well, I've been saying for a long time that uh, the DNC, the leadership of the Democratic Party, will be the last to get it. But it seems like they mm -hmm. are slowly getting it. That it, it, It's kind of, uh, you know, it, it, the, the energy is there and, it, and it's happening. And mm -hmm. one of the points, you know, you bring up is perhaps the communist hardliners back in 1989, 1990 were right that mm -hmm. by being flexible, Gorbachev enabled the end of the Soviet Union. The other end of the spectrum was East Germany's Eric Henniker, who insisted on strict party orthodoxy. And you point out that Henniker was dead set against political pluralism, against political pluralism. And then it was kind of interesting that former President George W. Bush on the anniversary of 9-11 likened Trump's violent extremists at home with terrorists abroad. And he used that word, he said, in their disdain for pluralism. They are children of the same foul spirit 
as the uh, the terrorists. So it, it's sort of an interesting and bizarre thread from the dogmatic East German leader to today's January 6th violent mob that uh, they don't like pluralism. Your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think, um, you know, this this question is actually really interesting. I'm glad that you asked it, because one thing that I've seen, you know, and especially as a as a, uh, you know, a person uh, trained in history who has an interest in the Cold War. One thing that I've seen over and over again in um, American depictions of the Cold War is um, that a lot of people, especially in the West, have a really hard time understanding the mentality and the motivations of communist politicians in the Eastern Bloc. Um, so one common way that this unfolds is to portray the Soviet Union or the, the Soviet system as effectively some kind of a scam, right? That socialists say they wanted to make everybody equal, but the politicians were knowingly pulling the wool over the eyes of the people to enrich themselves. Again, this goes back to the Reagan era, very common um, accusation. It existed before then, obviously, as well. Um, but this is, uh, in a lot of ways, the way that uh, that Americans kind of see the uh, the Soviet system a lot of times. Um, and so to go to, you know, to, to talk about a man like Eric Hernicker, um, you know, he was a dogmatic person. He was stuffy. He was out of touch. And he was willing to do literally anything to protect the state of affairs in East Germany, to protect communism in East Germany. But the part that people miss about that, especially from the outside, is that he also genuinely believed that communism was the future of human society. And he worked his entire life to build socialism in East Germany. Um, so today... Even most communists, even the you know you go to you go to uh, you know the furthest left uh, communist parties in the United States. Most of them, I would say, probably see very little to admire in a man like Eric Hernicker. But his ideological commitment to Marxism-Leninism and the commitment of all you know, or not all Soviet politicians, obviously there were some opportunists, you know, and especially in earlier years during the Stalin era, you know, a lot of opportunists that uh, that rose to the top. But, um, you know, for a lot of politicians and, you know, I would say I would argue for the Soviet system as a whole, a commitment to Marxism Leninism was a hugely important part of these governments during the Cold War era. And that's something that a lot of people in the West miss, um, you know, in in its entirety, essentially. Um, And then to tie it back, of course, the only I would say the only parties on the far right in the United States right now that have any kind of ideological consistency that's that, you know, that that is that um, rigid or that that is that consistent, essentially, is these far right openly neo-Nazi parties. Um, There are other groups, a lot of them, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of far right parties and they all, you know, fight with each other. We saw that after Charlottesville. Thank goodness they're not you know, unified, um, you know, because they'd be that much more dangerous. But a lot of them are very opportunistic. A lot of them, you know, and especially when you talk about mainstream Trumpism, there is no ideology. Trump says the vaccine is good when it helps him. And he says it's bad when Biden wins the election. Right. And so, you know, and especially if we're just talking about mainstream Trumpism, you know, obviously the, you know, the whole ecosystem of the far right is very complicated and I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in it. But um, for, main, for mainstream Trumpism, for sure, there is none of that consistency. Trump does whatever he wants and people either follow or they don't. And it does seem that, you know, people, people again, like to, to simplify. It's so much easier. There's, mm-hmm. you know, the support of the average person for Marxism-Leninism because, you know, it did sound kind of good. But then there were the, as you say, opportunists. And that mm-hmm. wasn't exactly, you know, they were not hewing the uh, Marxist-Leninist line particularly, but they were serving themselves. What a surprise. Politicians occasionally do that. And, and mm-hmm. I, I wonder, the pervasiveness of the display of the American flag with that blue stripe put onto it, 
it looks like support for a police state, kind of like East Germany's powerful Stasi. Do you think that this growing support for police power might actually reflect a growing fear that the American empire might be losing ground and that perhaps this is part of empires falling? Your thoughts? Well, I think, um, you know, what, what occurs to me is that um, 2020 was the first time in decades, maybe even, you know, longer than that, that anybody, you know, in kind of an organized way has stood up to challenge the assumption that huge amounts of states, so like the, you know, the 50 U.S. states and local taxes should always go to police uh, to spend as they please and effectively with, uh, with very few restrictions on what they're allowed to spend that money on. Um, and so I would say, in a certain sense, Blue Lives Matter is a reaction to that that has played on, um, you know, these these ideas, this idea of the culture war that Republicans have tried to cultivate. They're not able to address people's economic concerns. They're not able to give people a working government effectively. We saw that during COVID. Um, and so they play to these social issues and they say your status or your way of life is being threatened. Um, so to give an example of this, the city of Chicago was, uh, you know, received many. I live in the city of Chicago. Um, and so the city was given um, hundreds of millions of dollars in covid relief. Um, and the current mayor, Lori Lightfoot, um, funneled nearly three hundred million dollars of the money that they received um, for covid relief into the Chicago Police Department, oh um, which obviously is a ridiculous amount of money. Um and this is and this kind of but this kind of goes back to why police have been threatening to quit en masse, for example, in the face of vaccine mandates. This is just recently um, unfolding right now. Um, so there's this idea, I think, among police officers, especially in the conservative supporters of police officers, that police have always been put upon, you know, worst job in America kind of thing, um, even before people started questioning their role in public safety. And now. The idea is and the rhetoric is that it's gone so far that cops can't be expected to do their jobs at all because it's just too it's it's too much of a burden. Um, and again, this kind of ties back to the to the culture wars where conservatives are very receptive to that idea and um, progressives and liberals are kind of moving away from that and ever slowly inching towards the idea that public safety can look different. And you, you say every once in a while empires fall and they do the mm. traditional Historical graveyard of empires, Afghanistan, once again earned its title <laughs> with the fall of the American-installed alleged government in Kabul. As with mm. Vietnam, tremendous military might was defeated by a determined resistance to occupation by an outside force. Surely the rest of the world saw the folly of our adventure there many years ago. One predictable mm. reaction to such a loss the loss of uh, Afghanistan, as if we owned it, was to bluster ever louder, blame those who questioned the failed policy. Could this moment be one of those rare instances of the beginning of the end of an empire, this time the American empire? Well, I think that is another really interesting question because over, especially over the last few years, and especially since Trump has been elected, um, what I've seen in media and especially leftist media is that the end of the American empire is kind of um, held up as this ominous tone that's being that this uh, term that's being thrown out by certain segments of the left to suggest that America is going to have to atone for its sins. There's this kind of moralistic undertone to it that like America has reaped chaos across the world and now that chaos is going to come home to roost. In the most extreme form, of course, you know, the idea is that 
open bloodshed and warfare is going to come to the United States in, term, in, in terms of civil un- unrest. Um, and I think this mentality is kind of tied with the post-9-11 anxieties about American dominance and this idea that if America ever slips from number one economically right. or militarily – then foreign powers will conspire to exploit and dominate us in turn. Mm. And as I talked about with the far right um, gaining power from a conflict with China, this idea is dangerous, and especially for the left, um, because it encourages the idea that in order to um, in order to survive as a nation or in order to um, to protect ourselves, we need to lash out at our enemies, our perceived enemies, uh, particularly China, now before we lose our dominance um, economically and militarily. Um, and so what I would say, honestly, and this is a little counterintuitive, but I think that the end of um, the American empire should be reimagined and recast as an opportunity for a new beginning for what the American republic should look like on the other side. Um, so one thing that I've been very encouraged to see, and this would have been impossible even a couple of years ago, is that um, Bernie Sanders and others uh, in the Senate have been negotiating a bipartisan um, measures, so Republican senators are supporting it as well, um, to repeal key parts of the War Powers Act and to prevent the president from inciting forever wars without congressional approval, essentially whenever he wants. Um, and so that ultimately, like a, like a measure like that, like a repeal of the War Powers Act or a significant rewriting of the War Powers Act or, a, or similar legislation, um, could be taken as a signal of the end of the American empire, but it actually is a long overdue and popular step. Um, and so, you know, I'll, so I'll, so I'll just uh, conclude this this uh, line of questioning by saying, um, you know, if if the fall of the American Empire is this scary thing that's going to be forced upon us, it'll just give more power to the far right, and they'll be able to lash out Ooh. in the way that they want to do. That'll give them more power. And part of the reason I think it's so scary, um, this you know, this idea is that most people are already struggling in the way that our system works, the way that our economy works, and they don't want to think that things are going to get even worse. That things are going to be more violent, you know, less economic growth, less prosperity, et cetera. Yeah, the, the the belief that there's some absolute need for us to rule the world, you know, and, and this mm-hmm. idea of American exceptionalism. Hey, come on, people. It's time to get over that and just be uh, a, a part of the world community. I think we're starting to get there because, you know, what has it gotten us, this this uh, militaristic mm-hmm. need? It's been very profitable for the uh, military-industrial complex. But mm-hmm. one last question. You say, we've seen how weak our democratic norms and institutions really are. Even if a military coup here is unimaginable, the hijacking of the next presidential election is not. Please say more. What can we do? Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So there, you know, if we look back to the last election, there were a lot of concerns that um, there would be irregularity or that there, you know, I don't want to say irregularities because obviously that's, you know, associated with the Trumpian lie that uh, that the election was stolen. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to support that at all. Um, but there were concerns, real concerns from election um, advocates at that time that either there would be massive and voter, voter intimidation at the polls where uh, Trump Republicans would go out and make sure that people only were voting for Donald Trump or that um, key states would nullify the results. They would say, well, the, pop- the popular vote, the, the popular vote is in. We don't like the result as the state legislature or the state Senate. So we're going to send our own. We're going to refuse to certify these results, send our own legislature, our own electors and um, and do it that way, essentially, and nullify the uh, the effects of the election. That's something that could happen in 2024 that I think is maybe more likely to happen in 2024 than it did in 2020. Um, And then the Supreme Court, obviously, Uh if you know, 
if there's a situation where, you know, it, it actually has to be a very close election in order for the Supreme Court to intervene. There has to be a very tight race in only one or two key states, just like we saw in 2000, um, in order for the Supreme Court to be able to effectively intervene. But it is a possibility, obviously. Um, and like I said, with, um, you know, with poll watchers, quote unquote, you know, who are actually yeah. partisan, uh, you know, thugs, essentially, yeah. um, there could be additional violence um, at the polls or in uh, in terms of, um, you know, the aftermath of uh, of the 2024 election. So, you know, people breathed a sigh of relief in November that there wasn't widespread voter intimidation or violence on election day or just after. But nobody expected that something like January 6th was going to happen in the, um, you know, in the, uh, in the moment afterwards. So to, to offer solutions, I think for the, for the future, um, in the moment after a contested election, so we've had an election and there are some, you know, the Democrat is the winner, but there are some questions about whether Republicans are going to accept that. Um, I think the main answer in that, in that immediate situation is mass protests. Um, like I said earlier in the uh, in the podcast, coups are hard to pull off, and yes. they can often be stopped by popular opposition. Um, a rally or a series of rallies to prevent Trump or someone else uh, from stealing an election would easily be the largest protest in U.S. history, um, much larger than even George Floyd, um, and they would attract support from large portions, I think, of the um, you know the business class of the military, et cetera. Um, that bristled under Trump's capriciousness over the last four years. So his, uh, you know, his kind of ruling by whim, essentially. Um, and so, uh, so I'm hopeful that if there is further irregularity, if you know somebody like uh, if somebody like Trump decides to, um, you know, to move in that direction, that there will be that immediate response. But the long-term solution, I would say, towards um, securing a, um, you know, a better, you know, a better result or a better, you know, a more fair 2024 um, election would be uh, the first thing is definitely to pass a new Voting Rights Act. Yes. Um, we've seen encouraging signs from Joe Manchin that, um, you know, he is um, in large part responsible for drafting the newest version of the Voting Rights Act that's going to come up first in the uh, in the Senate um, when they reconvene uh, later this month. And so I'm hopeful that that will give him kind of the impetus to overcome his um, opposition to uh, filibuster reform and carve out an exception, which would be absolutely, you know, it's it's essential. Um, and then the second thing, uh, you know, we talked about the Democratic Party and the path of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I think the one of the big things is going to be building a long-term alternative to right-wing populism and giving yes. people an opportunity to participate meaningfully in politics um, and delivering economic relief. And so we've already seen that the Democratic leadership of the Democratic Party is moving in that direction. $3.5 trillion, again, would have been unimaginable a year ago. And the fact that Pelosi and Schumer are fully on board with it and willing to fight for it, I think that shows something even deeper. I think the Democratic Party really is fundamentally shifting away. You know, Bill Clinton said during his uh, administration, the era of big government is over. We are going to be, you know, moderate. We are going to be budget hawks. We are going to cooperate with Republicans to cut spending. And the Democratic Party has paid a price for that over the course of the past 20 years. And, you know, a price at the ballot box very, you know, in a very real way. And this and this kind of an effort, the fact that we are, you know, that we're seeing effectively what is a down payment on a Green New Deal, this three point five trillion dollars. And, you know, Pelosi derided the Green D, the Green Dream, quote unquote, in 2018. But now she's on now. 
now here she is, you know, championing this legislation. And I think, you know, my hope now is that the Democratic Party is never going to be the same after this. Well, one thing we've learned from uh, the discussion today and by looking at uh, empires falling and big, big change coming is that, believe it or not, even though the powers that be want us to believe that we are powerless, we are not powerless. It does matter when people get out there on the streets and make their voices heard. It absolutely matters. It mattered in uh, the Eastern Bloc, and it matters with us today. So if people want to read more of your stuff... I actually just released an article about um, vaccine access in the Global South with the Rosa Luxemburg Stifter in New York. I also have a Medium page. It's just under Matt Wehmeyer. If people are interested, they can... uh, they can read my uh, read my writing and uh, and let me know what they think. Thank you very much. It's been very very instructive and uh, even optimistic, dare I say. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy yeah. alive. Thank you for having me. Hey.